Uh, I want to welcome you to Village Church East. If I don't know you yet, my name is Craig Jarvis. I'm the lead pastor here, and I get to do this every week. And uh, it's a lot of fun that I get to uh, open God's Word with you, look into it, do an uh, exegetical study with you, um, which is a big word to simply say we just work through the Bible. We look at the Bible to see what it says, and we try not to make it say what we want it to say. And so we bend to the authority of God's Word. Today I want to talk to you about where we are at in our study of the aftermath in Genesis. Genesis 1 to 2 is about God creating all things. And God created all things very fill in the blank. Very good, yes. God created everything very good, Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, it goes into great detail to tell us how amazing creation was. However, something terrible happened in Genesis chapter 3, and we call it the fall. And when the fall happened, it's because God's greatest masterpiece, human beings chose to rebel against the Lord and live for themselves selfishly, doing what they wanted to do instead of what God wanted them to do. As a result of that, Genesis 1 to 2 is about God creating all things very blank, very good. And Genesis 3 to 6 is about sin tearing it all down. Tearing away the fabric of God's good creation. It's about this snowball that starts in Genesis 3 and it just rolls and rolls like you're making a snowman until it collects so much snow it's pulling out the grass and the roots of the trees and everything with every single push of the snowball. The more it is engaged, the more sin is engaged, the more damage it's doing to the earth and the more damage it's doing to humankind. The entire earth, by the time we get to Genesis 6, seems to be filled with sinful desires, actions, thoughts, and deeds. It is permeated all of God's creation. In fact, here's a verse in Genesis chapter 6 that always blows me away when I read it. Verse 5, the Lord, the Lord saw not everything that it was good, like in Genesis chapter 2. You remember that? In Genesis 2, the Lord saw everything that he had made, and it was very good, it says at the last verse of Genesis chapter 2. But by the time we get to Genesis 6, the Lord is seeing something completely different. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What does only evil mean? I mean, that's bad enough. What does only evil continually mean? Yeah, nonstop, right? And then we have this next verse that actually is just, if you sit down and think about it, it racks your brain. The Lord then regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. Sin lives to destroy and it will destroy you and everything around you. And so the question is, by Genesis 6, just six chapters into the Bible, just three chapters after we're introduced with sin, if sin has culminated to the point where God looks at everything and it's only evil continually, how long can creation survive? That's what we're asking. How long can creation survive? By Genesis chapter 4, we have three murders already. Genesis 6 is about God taking care of a situation before it consumed all that he had created. And so God decides in Genesis chapter 6 to bring a flood. And we're about to get to the Noah narrative. But for us as human beings, we have to deal with this simple question of how do we wrestle with God's holy anger? You like that? That's a good background, isn't it? Took me forever to come up with that. That's good, right? 
How do you deal with God's holy anger? How do you deal with the fact that God is a wrath-filled God? It's a good question, right? Everyone struggles with the emotions of God to one degree or another. It's very difficult sometimes to imagine that our God has emotions. Uh, Oprah. Oprah grew up in a Christian church. I don't know if you knew that or not. Oprah walked away from the church. Do you know what caused her to walk away from the church? She went to church one day and heard her pastor preach on God is a jealous God. She couldn't, she couldn't swallow that, so she got up and she left and she never looked back. It's very difficult for us as human beings to imagine God with emotions. And yet, God has emotions. In fact, the only reason we have emotions is because God has emotions. Did you know that? We are made in the image of God. Therefore, everything that we are and that we do and that we're capable of in some degree reflects who God is. He made us in his image. So if we have emotions, it's only proof that God has emotions. The problem is when we exhibit our emotions, we often do it in the wrong way, right? Can I get an amen? Our emotions come from God, but God does not have sinful emotions. For us as human beings, it's very difficult for us to exhibit emotions in a non-sinful way. What God has is everything in perfect order. And so God has emotions and they never get out of whack, unlike us. So my first question to you this morning is simply this. Is God angry? Uh, what do you think? Is anger a good emotion or a bad emotion? How many people think that anger is a good emotion? One person. One and a half. Uh, is, that, is that a half or a full one? It's a full one. He's totally committing. All right. So two and a half. How many people think anger is a bad emotion? Don't be swayed by the crowd. Three. Is anybody else listening? Am I on? Am I on? No? Yeah. Everybody's going... <laughs> Craig's going to trap us, and I'm not going to say anything. Oh, it's not good or bad. How many people say that anger is not good or bad? Oh, there's more takers on that one. <laughs> well, you are truly a postmodern crowd. Yeah, there's no good, there's no bad. It's all, it's all however you take it. All right. In the Bible, in the, in the book of Ephesians, it says, Be angry and sin not. So I ask you again, does God, does God have a problem with us being angry? No, otherwise it wouldn't say be angry. It literally says be angry. If you've ever felt like you should be angry, go ahead, it's okay. Be angry, but sin not. And that's the hard part for us, right? It's so easy for us to get into an emotion like anger and it just carries us down this crazy path until we become somebody we know we shouldn't be and we start saying things we know we shouldn't say and we start throwing things we wish we had back, right? Anger is a very difficult emotion to control and to be honest with you, so are a lot of emotions. We are fallen human beings and so we struggle to capture every single emotion, but God displays them all in perfect order. Sin, in order, we're gonna get back to that, but at, at this point, it's necessary to talk about where human history is at. 
Sin has created disarray. The earth is upside down. Genesis 6 and verse 1, we're going to back up right to the first verse. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Interesting. Can you relate to that at all? Yeah. The daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Some interesting words that we read here are they saw and they took, right? If you see and take something, is it usually a good thing or a bad thing? It's usually a bad thing, right? And in this case, it is a bad thing as well. Remember the two lines we have. We have the lines of Seth and the line of Cain. The line of Seth is from the line of Abel, this group of people that were honoring and worshiping God. And the line of Cain were those that are naturally born into human existence who let their sin nature run its course. Line of Cain, line of Seth. By the time we get to, and by the way, The line of Seth is identified in the last verse of Genesis chapter four by those who choose to call out on the name of the Lord. And then in Genesis chapter five, we have this long list of people who continue in that vein. Enoch is one of them, so he was not because God took him. Noah is another one of them. All of these people, Methuselah is another one. All these people that are in the line of Seth that is not a bloodline, but is a spiritual bloodline. They're born into sin like the rest of us, but they choose to worship God. But by the time we get to Genesis chapter six, we find that even the bloodline that Seth had, the bloodline that these godly parents had where they tried to pass their their faith off to their kids and tried to pass their faith off to their kids and tried to bring their kids up to worship the Lord, even that was failing. So by the time you get to Genesis chapter six, when man began to multiply in the face of the land, daughters were born to them. The sons of God, that is a reference to the line of Seth. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took and they used. We find that the line of Seth is even polluted by the time we get to Genesis chapter six. Starting after Adam and Eve, all human beings were born into a sinful state. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter six, sin has become our nature. This is the line we find ourselves in by default. We know this is true because in the New Testament, in Romans 5, 12, it says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who was that one man, church? Adam. Sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, So death spread to all men because all sinned. We are all born into the line of Adam. We are all born with Adam's sin nature. The line that God, uh, those in the line of God, the line of Seth, had to make for themselves a choice to not remain in the natural line of Cain, but to jump over into the spiritual line of Seth. This began to be a choice. Genesis 4:26. you can look it up. At that time, people became, began to call upon the name of the Lord because they forsook the line of Cain and they chose to worship God. By the way, Ephesians 2.3 still reminds us that we are, we are dealing with this today. Do you know what Ephesians 2.3 says? All you Awana kids would know this. Here's what it says. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And we're by nature, get that? We're by nature children of what church? Children of wrath. 
like the rest of mankind. If somebody comes up and they say to you, you know, we're all children of God, that's not true. We are all children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. It is by choice that we jump over into the spiritual line that God offers us. We are born into the line of Cain. We make a choice to worship God and be in the line of Seth. That's why the next verse here in, Genesis, uh, in Ephesians 2, 3 to 5, verse 4, it starts with, but God. There is a ceasing point where we can say, I no longer want to be in the line of Cain. I want to be in the line of God. God worshipers, but God. God interjects himself, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even while we were, what church? Dead in trespasses. Do you know what trespasses are? Sins. Even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace that you are saved. Isn't that great? You are pulled out of the line of Cain because of what God did. And it's interesting to me that the reason God offers to pull us out of the line of Cain is because of what? Oh, read the verse. Because of what? Because of his great love for us. Is that crazy? And it wasn't because you were such a good person. It wasn't because you were a great preacher. It wasn't because you're a good Christian. Because he had great love with which he loved us even while we were what, church? Even while we were dead in sin. God loved us even while we were dead in sins. That's what makes God God and us not. <laughs> People born into, this God, in, uh, into godly lines and with godly parents, even they fall away. You're not guaranteed that your children are going to follow the Lord. It has to be their choice. As Michael says this all the time, I love it. Here's what Michael says. He says, what one generation assumes, the second neglects and the third rejects. I don't ever want to assume my Christianity to the point where I just think my kids are getting it through osmosis. I want to interject Christianity and Christian principles into every part of my life so my kids know nothing but Jesus. And if you call that brainwashing, my thanks to you. Because if I don't do it, there's somebody else looking to brainwash them. There's somebody else going to do the job for me, and it's not going to be for godly principles. If I assume my kids are getting godly because they hang out with me, they will eventually neglect their salvation and their kids will outright reject it. So I'm the kind of a parent that makes sure that my kids know I serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And there's only one reason. It's because of his great love for me that I want to make sure they know that great love extends to them. Our kids are not guaranteed a place in heaven just because we raised them to follow Jesus. It has to be their choice. At some point, they have to stand up and say, I choose to be a God worshiper. And oh, the day that that happens. My kids, I, when that day happens, I'm, it's for us because we're a family into, into eternity at that point, not just here on the earth. Next week, we're going to have baptisms. 
We got like eight people signed up for baptisms next week. It's very cool. And if you did a percentage of our church, I think that's like 10% of our church is going to be baptized next week. So I don't know what you people have been doing, but I'm excited about it. Um, no, I'm so proud of you. Some, so you're going to be surprised at who you see get baptized next week. It is going to be phenomenal. We got all age groups. We got all backgrounds. We got ethnic groups. It's going to be amazing. And all of it is because every person who gets baptized has made a decision already to follow Jesus. It is their decision to follow Jesus, and baptism is a public declaration of that private decision of baptism. And you get to share in that next week, and you'll get to hear their testimonies, and I've been hearing them already, and they're very exciting. You're gonna, next week's gonna be a, we're gonna bust the walls out. It's gonna be great. Back to the passage. By this point in history, in Genesis 6, Many people have fallen away from the Lord or died already. And literally at this point in history, we are left with only one man standing for the Lord. Do you know who that is? Noah. Out of all of the people that populate the earth, only one man is left standing. And he is desperately trying to raise his kids to grow up to worship God. He's doing his best. Can you imagine how these family reunions must have been for Noah? Because everybody's living like six, seven, eight hundred years. So they have these family reunions. Their kids have kids. Their kids have kids. And, and they're having offspring like six, seven hundred years old. They're having kids because it's so early on where God created all things that the, the purity of the human race is so pure. People are living longer and they're procreating like crazy. The earth is literally being full of people, people marrying and intermarrying, and it was pure, and there was no three-headed kids coming out or anything like that. It was, it was a pure race that was being created, and God was literally populating the earth, but by the time we get to Noah, all of those who have become God worshipers had either died off or they have abandoned the faith altogether. And 120 years later, after Noah begins building the ark, the only one left is Noah imagine how those family reunions were? Oh, here's Ham and Shem and Japheth. Those are Noah's kids. They're the Bible thumpers. Stay away from them. They're crazy. You ever go to a family reunion like that? <laughs> yeah. Well, God had had it at this point. And God said in verse three, then the Lord said, my spirit will not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. You know what that means? In 120 years, it's all coming to an end. And a timeline is, Jesus draws a timeline in the sand, and he says, 120 years, and something's going to happen very bad. The Lord will pour out his wrath on humankind at this point. Now, we'll get back to this in a minute, but we come across an interesting verse. It's kind of like a sidebar, and so we're going to go to it now. This is uh, verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. They were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. We come across this word Nephilim. Nobody knows what this group of people uh, solidly are. And so they just interpret the word from the Hebrew. The Nephilim were on the earth. Who are the Nephilim? Well, 
The early church has told us that this is like angels that took on human form. You guys are going to like this because it's a little bit of a fairy tale idea. Angels that take on human form and they procreate with human women and they bring about these like crazy demonic children and they fill up the earth and they start overtaking all of humankind. All right. That makes for a great Hollywood movie, but it probably is not true. We've already found out that sons of God, that phrase sons of God, refers to the line of Seth. So it doesn't necessarily mean that these need to be angelic beings. Also in scripture, sons of God can refer to mighty men. It can refer to men of renown. It can refer to tall men. Mighty men or sons of God gives somebody an aspect of um, nobility or standout-iveness. Is that a word? They stand out from the rest of the people around them. Giants, possibly, is another interpretation for this word. However this word is translated, my guess is it's not angelic beings going around populating the earth with weird demonic babies from from weak women. I don't think that's where this is going. Where I think this is going is there was a group of men who were powerful, ancient warriors, abusing their power and taking advantage of people all around them. Now, you may think to yourself, well, Craig, that's just something that you think of. Well, maybe not. Nephilim is also used in one other portion of Scripture, and this will really make your ears perk up. Nephilim is used when the spies went into the land of Canaan. Do you remember this? When the spies went into the land of Canaan to spy out the land, they brought back a good report or a bad report? Yeah, two brought a good report, and the rest brought a bad, 10 brought a bad report. 10 were bad and two were good. That's a little song we say. Anyway, 10 brought bad, two brought good. The 10 said, we saw huge grapes in the land, huge tracts of land. We saw, huge, we saw uh, the land flowed with milk and honey. We saw vegetation and harvest and it's full of good stuff. But they also saw one other thing. They saw giants in the land. Translation, Nephilim. Here's what it says, Numbers 13, 32. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw it are of great height. They, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed ourselves to them like, what church? Grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. By the way, the Nephilim, these tall giants, live typically in three areas, Giza, Gath, and Ashdod. And by the time we get to David, we have an outstandingly tall warrior whose name was Goliath, who lived in Gath. And he had three brothers. Was it three brothers or four brothers? I don't remember. He had, he had brothers and they were all tall too. And some uh, scholars think that Goliath was a descendant of one of these Nephilim. However you want to translate it, these, this group of people, whether they were strong, tall, ancient warriors of some kind, they were using their power to abuse all the people around them. And this again, grieved the heart of God. Life on earth continues to disintegrate. The strong were taking advantage of the weak, the powerful overwhelmed the poor, the giants, these men of strength hurt others to get themselves ahead. Creation is being abused by the image bearer. And here's what it says in the next verse in Genesis 5. 
The Lord, now get this, and pick out some of the key words. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What are the words that jump out at you? Yeah, again, we have it. Only evil continually. Have your kids been only evil continually ever? (laughs) That's pretty bad, right? To the idea that you're only evil is one thing, but only evil continually. And it's not just your actions. Even when you sit down at the end of the day and you think, you can only think thoughts that are evil continually. Sin has taken the reins. The population of Cain's descendants grows and grows. And the population of God followers narrows and narrows. Seth's line is going away until there's only one man standing, and that is Noah. And now we are invited to see the emotions of God. Now we get to the meat of what I want to talk about this morning. Here's the next verse. And the Lord God, would you say that next word for me, church? The Lord God, what did he do? Oh, sorry, next verse. The Lord God, what? Regretted that he had made man in the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. Grief, anger, sorrow. In the next verse, we'll see that he's sorry. He's sorry he ever created human beings in the first place. Now, how bad does sin have to be to make God think, I'm sorry I ever started this project in the first place? (laughs) I mean... You remember when when Judas uh, and Jesus were talking and Jesus said, I know one of you is going to betray me and it's better for that guy if he'd never been born. Right? Did you know he said that about Judas? He looks at Judas in the face and says, there's a guy here that's going to betray me, Judas. And Judas is going, huh? Judas, and by the way, it's better if that guy had never been born. How do you think Judas would have felt at that point? What? It's better if I wasn't here. You never loved me? (laughs) Can you imagine feeling like that about the entire planet? In Genesis 6, this is God's emotions concerning the entire planet. Why are we invited to see God's emotions? Because our God is an emotional God. We wouldn't have emotions if he didn't have emotions. And let me just clear a few things up. Regret does not mean that God made a mistake. Sorrow doesn't mean that he failed his plan. That's not what those words are here to to help us understand. Those words are here to help us understand God's heart, not to try and nail him with a wrongful emotion that indicates to us God makes mistakes. We're invited to see God's emotional heart here solely because we're invited to see how God feels about our sin. It brings him desperately deep sorrow and regret. The reason I say that is because God doesn't regret that he made all of humankind. After all, how does he save all of humankind? Through one man, through Noah. And God saves Noah and his family. So God is not regretting the fact that he made human beings. He's regretting what sin has corrupted his world to become. He's not sorry he made humans. He's not second-guessing himself. We are meant to see in this revelation of emotions how God feels about our sin. And church, how does God feel about our sin? 
He hates it. Is that it? He hates it? Any other emotions we can throw in there? He's angry. He despises it. He grieves over it. In the Old Testament, it says that our sin is an abomination to God. Do you understand abomination? Abomination is the feeling you get right before you throw up. That's abomination. You know that feeling? Where you're trying to hold it down, trying to hold it down, and you just can't, and then, boom, it all goes out? That's abomination to God. But his emotions are never out of control. They're never unreasonable. They're never vengeful. They never seek their own, and they never hold a grudge. God's emotions are never out of whack like our emotions get out of whack, but God has emotions just like us. And you want to know what gives God his deepest sense of emotions? It's when we repent and when we sin. When we sin, we bring him great sorrow. When we repent, it brings him great joy. Sin demands justice. The Lord God, the next verse in verse 7 says, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. Does that break your heart to read that verse? It should be on a black screen, I think. For I am sorry I made them. God reveals his holiness and his distribution of justice. You see, we can't really appreciate God's forgiveness unless we appreciate how God feels about our sin. What do you have to be saved from if you're not lost in sin? We call Jesus our savior. What did he save you from? Our sin. He saved us from our sin. He saved us from the penalty of our sin. He saved us from the consequences of our sin. He saved us from sin. That's why we call him our savior. And if you heard of people saying, you have to be saved, that's what they're referring to. Your sin is consuming you. You may think that it's not. You may think you got a handle on it. It is eating your life away. Fabric by fabric, cloth by cloth, your life will be eaten away by the sin you invite in. Jesus came to set you free from the sin that will consume you and your family and your children and your... Sin just doesn't come live to consume you, at least to consume everything around you. God's holiness cannot look upon our sin. Sin is the opposite of God. <laughs> That's the problem. Sin cannot have a relationship with God. If you think that you can come to the Lord and he'll get to understand who you are, you're sorely mistaken. And yet we sing songs like that. Just as I am. Now if we mean... God will accept me as I am. He'll love me as I am, meaning that when I'm a sinner dead in my sins, God loves me, then yes, I would agree with that. But if you're thinking to yourself, well, God will understand my foibles and learn to live with them, we're not serving the same God. Jesus didn't come to die on the cross to save you from your sins so that you could learn to live with yourself better. Jesus came to die on the cross to save you from your sins so that he could help you understand this does not need to control you anymore. You can get rid of this, and I'll help you do it. God cannot look on sin. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, he took our sins on himself. And if you ever read a verse that is totally confusing in Scripture, it is this one. When Jesus died on the cross, God turned his face away. Now, I don't pretend to even 
touch that with a theological pole. I don't understand how the father can turn his back on the son. I don't understand it. All I know is that at that point in history, that's exactly what happened, and it, and it happened only once, and it will never happen again, and it only happened because at that point in history, Jesus became sin for me, and God can't look on sin. Jesus became the liar you are. Jesus became the sexual predator we are. Sin became the loose tongues we cannot control. Jesus became all of that for us. Every murderer that has come to know the Lord, Jesus became that. That's why I can't explain it because Jesus is holy. But at that point in history, somehow, Jesus became sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Just as I can't understand how Jesus, a holy God, can become sin, I can't understand how a sinful person can become righteousness like God. But that's propitiation. Ever wonder what that word means? It's a great word, propitiation. It's where all my sin transferred to Jesus and all his righteousness transferred to me. And when God looks at you, church, you gotta understand this. When God looks at you, he doesn't see you as a sinner. <laughs> he sees you as a righteous brother of Jesus Christ. You are sinless before God. Well, Craig, what if I sin tomorrow? You're still sinless. Well, Craig, what if I do a really bad sin later on? You're still sinless. If you know Christ as your savior, God sees you as the righteousness of Jesus himself. That's the, amazing, that's the amazing activity that went on the cross, and that's why we never stop talking about it. Sin is a human concept, but Jesus became sin for us. Now, God does not get wrapped up in sin, and that's why, because of this, God's anger against sin is justified. When God gets angry at sin, it's completely justified. Why? Because sin is corrupting everything that he made that is good. It's also reasonable. Mankind was made for God, made to worship God, and we are killing each other. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, if God lets this go, we're going to wipe ourselves out. God's wrath against sin is holy. If God were not angry with sin, you should be concerned. Because if God was not angry against sin, he wouldn't have poured out his wrath on Jesus. And that's what makes us holy. God's anger against sin is tempered. He preserved Noah and his family. <laughs> Isn't that great? It's tempered. It's not, let's just start all over again. The image of God was too important to totally eradicate. And so God finds one God worshiper and that's enough to save them. God's anger, wrath against sin is strategic. He's gonna start over, but he's gonna demonstrate what sin does. And the reason we talk about the flood, because it really happened and it is not a fairy tale. The reason we hold to the truth that God destroyed the earth with a flood is not so that we can prove how evolution is false. The reason we hold to the flood 
And what God did is because we need to remind ourselves this is the consequence of our sin. Wrath poured out on all human existence. And God's wrath against sin is grace-filled. Do you remember when God went to Cain and said, please, please listen to me now. Sin desires to have you, but you must master it. And Cain said, good talk, God. And he went and murdered his brother. Let me ask you a quick question. Why do you think Noah built an ark for 120 years? Well, he had no nails, granted. He had like these big mallet hammers. That took a while. There's nothing to saw down the trees. Why didn't God just plop a boat in the forest and say, Noah, let me take you out for a walk. What in the world? Here's a big ark right here. Let's jump on board. Why did he make Noah build an ark for 120 years? And by the way, none of us have lived for 120 years, right? Right? Okay, just making sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Noah would have became, become the crazy man down the road that is building something in his backyard because something's going to fall from the sky. Remember, it hadn't rained by this point. Nobody knew what rain was. Water's going to fall from the sky. Noah's this crazy old man building a boat in the desert for 120 years. Don't go around Noah. Noah's the nut job that lives down the street. Why didn't God just give him a boat? Why go through 120 years of, oh, dad's out in the backyard doing his project again. Ham, sham, japheth sitting around the table. You gotta be kidding me. What's he doing? He's building a boat? Doesn't he know we don't live near any water? What is he doing? Well, he says, a flood's coming. Yeah, that was 100 years ago. Literally. <laughs> but he built it for 120 years. Why do he do that? Why did God have him build a boat for 120 years and look like a fool in his neighborhood? Belief, faith, grace. Ever consider this? Grace to the people who could have got on board. There's plenty of room on the boat. Plenty of room on the boat. Do you think if Noah's relatives had have turned and repented that God would have let them on the boat? Do you think that? I think so. And I have proof for it. When God was going to destroy Nineveh, he sent them what? Jonah. He sent them Jonah. And Jonah did not want to go. Jonah was a little bit of an idiot. But Jonah finally did go after he got thrown up by a whale. You know the whole story, the big fish. You know the whole story. Jonah finally goes to Nineveh. And this great city that was going to be destroyed by God because their sin had piled up against God. It says in, in Jonah 1.1, their sin had piled up against God. God says, I'm going to destroy them, but I'm going to send you Jonah. And Jonah goes and he preaches and they all repent. Did God destroy Nineveh? No. Why? Because God is grace-filled. And so I tell you, if anyone, any person, any, anyone had repented, they would have had a boat, a, a seat on the boat. But here's the sad thing, church, 120 years and not one person repented. That's a long time to preach the same message, isn't it? And no fruit. God built a boat with Noah for 120 years because he's grace-filled. But after 120 years, God's patience came to an end. The line is drawn and the water fell. 
So the question at this point, church, is simply this. How do I know if God is angry with me? God is God has wrath, and God's wrath will be poured out against sin. How do I know if God's wrath applies to me? To understand this, we look at the story just a little bit more. Genesis 6, verse 9. There, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a what church? A righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Do you notice how this verse starts? Does it perk your interest at all? Do you realize how many times we've seen this already? And each time it's introduced to us, we are meant to see this is a brand new start. These are the generations. These are the generations of Cain. These are the generations of Seth. These are the generations of Noah. A clarification of who Noah was. Noah was born into Cain's line, but chose to live in Seth's line, to worship God. Let me ask you this question. How do you think Noah was raising his family? To be God worshipers or to stay in Cain's line? What do you think? God worshipers. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. Let me just quickly say, I think the earth was filled with violence here because there was a bunch of murders already. There's a bunch more that aren't recorded. And violence filled the earth because in my view, I think what Satan was trying to do is keep going the ball that was, the, the snowball that he began when Cain destroyed Abel. He does not like images of God, so he's trying to knock them off. And so he makes the earth filled with violence with the hopes that we'll eradicate this planet of all images of God. Cain was a tool Satan used to get rid of other people and that became a good plan for him. Verse 12, the Lord saw the earth and behold it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Corrupt is mentioned three times in two verses here because that is what sin loves to do. Have you ever seen the effects of sin corrupting a person? Have you ever watched sin corrupt somebody that you love? The effects of sin always corrupt, and unfettered sin will corrupt completely. The gate to righteousness is smaller and smaller. The road to destruction has always been well populated, and it will bring you to an end you do not want to have. God may be angry at sin, and his anger extends to those who choose to live in rebellion of sin rather than the freedom his son provides. God actually calls, like we already found out, he already calls those rebels who live in sin vessels of wrath. And in verse 13, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Why? Why is God going to destroy everything he made so good? It is because God cannot live with sin in his creation. And he can't live with sin in you either. You are his creation. In fact, sin has once again filled the earth. <laughs> because even though God saves Noah, Noah drops the ball big time. Do you remember? He gets drunk and, oh, what a moron. And then Ham. Ham, what a goofball. Ham does something terrible with his dad. His dad is naked and drunk, and Ham does some terrible things. 
And as a result of that, Ham's line is again cursed. God saves Noah and his family, but he doesn't save them because they're perfect. He saves them because they want to worship God. And it doesn't mean that they're going to be perfect for the rest of their lives because they prove that they're only sinners saved by grace. But what it shows us about the heart of God is that he's not willing to live without us. We are the greatest part of creation. And even though he knows sin will live on through us, he would rather keep us, salvage us, and redeem us. There is coming a day when the earth will be once again judged. I know it's fairy tale stuff. People don't talk about it anymore. But Jesus sure did. Jesus talked about it a lot. Matthew 24, 37, for as were in the days of Noah, Jesus' own words, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. 120 years. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Do you know when Jesus is going to return? When we least expect it. And do you know how devastating that's going to be? Huh. You thought the flood was devastating. This will be worse. Why did God wait to bring the flood? So that those who were being judged could be offered a place in the boat. Why does God wait to judge this earth? Because I want to tell you, sin is filling up the earth pretty good these days, wouldn't you say? You watched the news recently? <laughs> Corruption amok. Why doesn't God just judge us and get it over with? Same reason because we have another day to repent. We have another day to share the love of Jesus with somebody dead in their sins. We have another day to baptize eight people in a public pool and give testimony that Jesus is still saving people. And if you wanna be in the line of Jesus Christ, which is the line of Seth, you can do that. Be a God worshiper, welcome to the family. God's hands are open, he killed his son so that you could be welcomed in. That is his means of salvation. But if you want to remain in the line of Cain, the rebellious line of Cain, you can do that too. But the flood's coming. And there is penalties to pay for our sins. Why does God wait to eradicate sin? 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is what, church? And there you have it. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. How do I escape judgment today? There's no ark available, by the way. There's no big boat you can get on to get out of this. How do we escape judgment today? You repent, you come to Jesus. You allow his blood to wash away your sins. You accept his forgiveness and you believe in Jesus Christ. And if you don't know what that looks like, come back next week, you'll hear eight great testimonies of how this happened in people's lives. And it can happen in yours as well. God has given you everything you need to get out of under your sin. If you want to know the truth, that's where God's full wrath went. It doesn't have to fall on you. It fell on Jesus so that you could be free. You must repent of your sin and be born again. That is the new generation that God keeps talking about in Genesis. And these are the generations of Craig and Beth Jarvis. 
We choose to follow the Lord. As for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. And my prayer is that all of my girls grow up to know the Lord and follow him. And then they stand up and say, these are the generations of Abigail Jarvis. And then they have a, they have a line that follows in the line of God worshipers. Oh, I hope that's true. Listen, we're all in the same boat. You like that? Yeah. The Jarvises aren't better than any of anyone else in this room. I'm no better than you. Oh, we're in the same boat. We are all dead in our sins. It is Jesus that took the full brunt of our sins so that we could be forgiven. And it's your choice to come and be forgiven or to stay in rebellion against God who loves you. Why repentance? Because repentance brings healing. Um, Romans 2.5 says it's because of our unrepentant heart. God's wrath is being stored up against us. But when you repent, God's wrath was applied to Jesus. No more wrath from God. Some people will tell you that when you get to heaven, if you're a Christian, there's going to be a big screen in heaven. And all of your foibles and all of your sins are going to be played up there. And you'll stand there in embarrassment. And it'll be just terrible for you. And everybody will know, oh, Craig, that's who you really were when nobody was around. They say that to throw a guilt trip on you. That goes against every theological teaching in Scripture that says your sins are gone. Gone. They are thrown into the deepest sea. They're east from the west. They are remembered no more. There is no videotape waiting to be shown of your sins in heaven. You are completely forgiven. You are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of Jesus Christ has saved us from the law of sin and death. That means no big screen. You're forgiven. You're forgotten. God has forgotten you. You pray and you'll say, remember when I did this, uh, uh, Lord, I did this yesterday and I'm asking forgiveness for it again. He'll go, really? You, you, you did this yesterday? I don't remember that. Thank great. It's not because he's forgetful. It's because he's forgiving. God is desperately in love with sinners. He's so in love with sinners that he's willing to judge his own son rather than them. That's how we wrestle with God's wrath. That's how we wrestle with God's holy anger. If you want to be honest, God's anger was poured out on his own son because his love for you was greater than his wrath against sin. Well, Craig, that's old-fashioned preaching this morning. God's an angry God. Eh, maybe so. Let me rock your world for a second. Do you know what Jesus' first message he ever preached was? Anyone know? It wasn't the Sermon on the Mount. Do you know what the first message he ever preached was? Repent. Repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In fact, Jesus preached this message continually. You may, be, you may be sold on the fact that Jesus never preaches repentance or he never points out the sin in people's lives. Oh, how wrong, how wrong you are. Here's just four examples. Matthew 4, 17, the first time we're told what Jesus preached. From that time on, Jesus began to preach saying, church, will you say it for me? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Can you believe Jesus would tell people to repent? That's kind of cocky, isn't it? Old-fashioned preaching, Mark 1, 15. And saying, this is Jesus saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
Repent and believe in the gospel, Luke 5.32. Jesus says, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to what church? Repentance. If you're righteous, you don't need to repent. The problem is there is none righteous, not even one. Luke 15.10. Just so I tell you, Jesus said, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who, what church? You see, repentance brings forgiveness, joy, relief, healing. Unrepentance brings judgment, pain, guilt. Jesus preaches the same message Jonah, Noah, the prophets, and your pastor preaches. And that is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I don't know when it'll come, but it'll come. And God loves a heart that repents. I did a baptism once, and uh, this lady who got baptized, she accepted the Lord and she was baptized and we had her in the tank and she was giving her testimony. Had it all written out, just like the people you'll see next week, they have it all written out. And she gave her testimony, and her mom, who lived down south, came up for her baptism. I don't know if her mom was a believer or not, but she came up to see her baptism. She's sitting out in the congregation, and the woman is standing in the baptistry with me, about to be baptized. She takes her prepared sheet, and she sets it aside, and she looks at her mom. And she begins to confess every sin she could think of that she did against her mom, (laughs) She said, Mom, I was this person growing up. I did this to you. I was ungrateful. I was unthankful. I didn't love you like I should. I rebelled against you. I did this. I did that. And we're sitting there. The entire church is sitting there on a personal conversation that this woman is having with her mother. It was powerful. Do you want to know why? Because repentance brings healing. And non-repentance brings shame. And she used that baptismal as a confessional booth. She had repented to God, and now she was repenting to her mom. So church, I tell you the same thing. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus as your savior, that is the first step. You've got to repent and believe that Jesus came to save you from your sins. That is the most important thing you could ever do. That is what leads you to the point where you understand truly who Jesus is. He is your savior. He saved you from your sins. All of your sins are gone and you are forgiven. And now you put your head on your pillow at night and you are, you're released from all of that. That's why I preach the gospel. And that's why they call it good news.